We keep hearing the phrase, this is the new normal. And the subsequent question, is your organization ready to face it? But what is this new normal and what should we be prepared for? What is the mindset that will make us resilient in this new world of unprecedented disruptions? How should we deal with the increasing complexity of our organization and its environment? How do we motivate our people to fight multiple, consecutive, and even overlapping fights at our side? Today, my guest is Kostas Markidas, the Chair of Strategic Leadership at London Business School. Kostas is recognized as one of the world's foremost experts on strategy and innovation. His work explores how companies can create a culture of continuous innovation and the role that individual managers play in making the company more innovative. His forthcoming book, Organizing for the New Normal, explores the question, how do you prepare the organization to respond to continuous and overlapping disruptions or one disruption after another in a short period of time? Welcome to a new episode of Building Resilience, the podcast that hosts some of the most brilliant minds who have studied resilience or have tremendous experience in navigating ever-changing waters. Hello, Costas, and welcome to Building Resilience. I'm thrilled to be, to be hosting you. Thank you very much for having me here, Julia. It's a pleasure. To have everyone know who you are, even though we do have an introduction and I do tell everyone about where you work and what you're doing, what got you interested in strategy and innovation? Wow. Uh, li- listening to your talks, you... Yeah, well, uh, who, who could possibly not be interested in strategy and innovation? I think they are two very, very exciting topics. As a way of background, I did uh, my doctoral degree a long, long time ago at Harvard. It was on strategy. And those days, you didn't call it strategy. You used to call it business policy. And then joined London Business School in 1990. So I've been a professor there for the last 30 years. And, you know, my, my, my core area of expertise is strategy. The, the original topic that I started teaching to my students was strategy. And, you know, very quickly I realized that uh, strategy is nothing without innovation. Because at the end of the day, strategy is about positioning the company in its industry environment to give it differentiation. And that requires creativity and innovation. So very quickly, I couldn't tell the difference between strategy and innovation. And I I based all my career and all the research and books I've written since then on those two topics. But you have a keen interest in psychology and uh, individual psychology as well. Every time I hear uh, one of your talks, you always make references to all sorts of experiments and the human nature. Yes, that's correct. I have to say, even though it's amazing because my background is in economics, really. I did my undergraduate in economics, my master in economics. I did my MBA, which was really emphasizing economics. Um, So I I never really studied psychology, but very quickly, not only through my teaching, but primarily through my consulting with companies, I realized that uh, a lot of it, of what we do in business today, has to do with human beings. Um, and you'll see later on when we talk about agility and um, resilience, it's all about people. It's all about the behaviors of people. And that got me then into thinking and studying why is it that people behave the way they do. And that inevitably leads you into psychology, primarily social psychology. I'm not, I'm not into personal psychology or psychiatry, more about social psychology and how we behave uh, in teams, in organizations, in society. And the factors that drive those behaviors, which 
in, in the end, determine whether our companies will be resilient, will be innovative, will be performing well or not. So, you know, my interest in psychology is not something that I started with, but I naturally gravitated into it uh, as a result of realizing how important it is for business. So is it individual? Is it strategy? Is it innovation? What plays towards really building resilience for organizations? I think it, it's a combination, really. I mean, we need to think of it as a, in a systemic way. Uh, whenever we say what causes something and we always look for one factor, I think it's a bit simple like that. It's, it's a combination of things. At the end of that, I always think it's people that create the resilience. But then the question becomes, well, why do people behave the way they do to achieve resilience? And it boils down to maybe the organization. And then the question is, why does the organization make people behave like this? It boils down to the strategy. So one is related to the other. You cannot say this is the only factor and it's isolated from the other. You have to think in an interconnected way. You know, for, for example, for me, whenever people talk about resilience or, or for that matter, um, agility or innovation or customer centricity, I, I, you know, for me, the, all these things are wonderful things to have in an organization. Should the organization be innovative? Of course. Should it be resilient? Of course. But you cannot ask people to be resilient. You cannot go into a company and say, hey, I would like you to be resilient or I would like you to be innovative. It, that doesn't happen like that. These things are byproducts of something else. And what are they byproducts of? They are byproducts of the day-to-day -day behaviors that every human employee engages in every day. Like what? If everybody in the company questions the way that we operate, if everybody goes outside their silos and talks to their colleagues and cooperate. If everybody behaves with autonomy and is able to experiment, if people, in other words, are able to do all these behaviors every day, then by definition, you will achieve agility, you will achieve innovation, you will achieve resilience. But then the question becomes, how are we going to get everybody in a company to behave like that? And the mistake people make is they think, well, we tell them. We tell our employees, hey, I would like you to experiment. I would like you to think outside the box. I would like you to quit. And the evidence is telling people is not enough. What do you need to do? You need to put the right organizational environment in place to support and promote these behaviors. So here comes the interplay between human behaviors that lead to resilience, let's say, in the organizational environment. And part of the organizational environment has to be the strategy of the firm. For example, we say we have to give people autonomy because that makes us responsive to change and resilient and so on. Yes, but you cannot give autonomy without certain parameters in place. So, and these parameters are the strategic choices of the firm. If you don't have a clear strategy, you cannot give autonomy. And if you cannot give autonomy, you cannot have resilience. And it goes on like that. Kostas, what is for you the final purpose of resilience? I've been asking this question for, uh, from everyone, and I'm curious where you stand on this. Well, I'm a strategist. I'm a strategy professor, and our unit of analysis is always the performance of the firm. You know, that's what we do. At the end of the day, whenever we, we, when I talk to companies, when I talk to students, when we do research, people always say, why are you studying 
this phenomenon? Why are you... And the answer that we always give is because it has an effect on the performance of the firm. So at the end of the day, I think resilience has the intrinsic value of helping the firm perform better and respond to all these disruptions, for example, that we are going through right now. It, you know, it's like saying, uh, you know, why should I aspire as a human being to be beautiful? Well, it's a nice thing to have, but beauty in itself has no value. You know, at the end of the day, you need to be beautiful because it allows you to do other things. The same with resilience. It allows us, you know, to have a, a high performing organization, I think. You were talking about the disruptions we are going through and everyone is talking, and I was just reading an article just before we connected about the new normal, hmm. which is a phrase that um, I'm, I'm somehow, yes, not at ease with. How do you feel about it? Yeah. Look, Julia, I, my, my, for 30 years, I've been arguing that in management and in business, we suffer a lot from lack of clarity. Lack of clarity. You know, we talk in these very generic, beautiful sounding words and phrases that everybody kind of thinks they know what we mean, but they don't really know. So, for example, you go and say to people, think outside the box. And everybody says, okay, okay. But if you ask them, what exactly does that mean? They don't really know. Or we say to people, think strategically. Like, what, is, what does that mean? You know, the average person, there's so many different meanings of the phrase think strategically that you may mean, you may mean uh, X and they understand Y. And even though it's two different things in our heads, we think we agree, whereas we don't really agree. The same with statements like disruption. Everybody's saying, oh, how do I respond to disruption? Well, there's so many different kinds of disruption out there. I cannot tell you how to respond to a disruption until you tell me what disruption is affecting you. It's the same if I go to my doctor and I say, doctor, I don't feel too well, and, and the doctor immediately prescribes me a medicine, I'd be very worried. How could you prescribe the medicine if you don't know my disease? So you, I cannot prescribe how to respond to disruption until you tell me what disruption you have in mind. The same with the phrase new normal. It's become very popular now. Everyone says it's a new normal. And believe it or not, now increasingly people are talking about a new phrase, the never normal. It's not about the new normal anymore. It's the never normal. And again, what does that mean? What? So as you know, I've just written a book that has in its title, the new normal, you know, organizing for the new normal. But in that book, very early on, I say, look, let me define for you what I think is the new normal. Because like I said, everybody has their own definition in their head. And we may think we talk about the same thing, but we are really talking about apples and oranges. For me, the new normal that organization face is not COVID or, you know, the disruption of COVID. It's important, of course, but it's, that's not the new normal. The new normal is the fact that in today's world, we are being hit by disruption after disruption so quickly that we don't really have time to rest anymore. You know, in the good old days, like 10, 20, 30 years ago, we had disruption. So disruption is not something new. But 30 years ago, we will have a disruption. We will respond to it. We will transform the organization as a result of the disruption and then maybe have five, 10, 20 years to enjoy the benefits of our, of our efforts, to enjoy the benefits of our strategy. Now, 
we respond to one disruption, and while we are responding to one disruption, another one hits us. And while we try to respond to that one, another one hits us. This is the new normal that many companies have to face. The fact that they are being hit by disruption after disruption without any much time in between to rest or to prepare. That is the new normal. So it feels like, and it not only feels, it, it really feels like it's extremely complex. Living in a business, working as HR, even for me, I'm sure for you working with business leaders is the same. And you hear this from them all the time. It is extremely complex. Yeah. What? Oh, yeah. I'm glad that I'm an academic rather than a business manager because <laughs> I, don't, I don't have to face these challenges. You know, but, you know, I mean, if I was an HR person, I'm sitting here trying to make sense of all the implications that the digital disruption had on my business over the last 20 years. Because, you know, since the early 2000s, we've been going through this digital transformation era, which has had an unbelievable effect on many of the things we do. It has affected us as individuals, as consumers, as employees. It has affected our values, how how we want to be treated, how we want to work, and so on. So if I'm an HR manager, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to cope with that and say, okay, what does it mean that now that I have employees that, you know, for example, one of the changes we've seen is that employees now are less loyal. And by that, I mean that the younger generation, they want to work for a year or two years, and then they want something else. And they move on to other jobs and other challenges and so on. So I'm as an HR manager, you're sitting there saying, okay, how do I motivate these uh, foodloose employees? And how do I retain the talent inside my organization? And while you're dealing with that, suddenly you get hit by COVID-19, which brings new challenges. For example, how do I maintain the culture of the organization when everybody's working in a very decentralized way from home and they never come to the office anymore? And while you're trying to deal with that, all of a sudden you're being hit by artificial intelligence, which means that Maybe now I can automate many of my processes and I don't need all this all this number of employees. I may have to, uh, you know, let a lot of people go, uh, which will affect my culture or maybe retrain people. And you see what I'm saying? It's, it's like one is, I mean, think, think of it as a boxer in the ring and you're fighting and you're being hit by two, three boxes, you know, left, right, left, right. And you're trying to cope with that and say, my God, where do I respond first? And what do I do first? It's like, you, you, you're going to faint before you even have a chance to think about it, isn't it? It's very sure. complex. That's, that's why it's very complex and it's hard to know where to start and what to do. And I know you've been studying this for an entire lifetime. Yeah. To start with, are there, is there a mindset? Are there a set of behaviors that yeah. will prepare business leaders, businesses, and us as individuals as well yeah. for this continuous disruption? It, it's always, is that a starting point? It's like the chicken and egg problem. I mean, you have to be doing, I suppose, many, many things. But I agree with you that if I were to prioritize, I would say, look, start also with the right mindset and the right attitude in the organization. And what do I mean by that? The right mindset, first of all, we have a lot of evidence, a lot. I mean, I can give you as many academic studies as you want, which show that companies that respond successfully to all this continual disruption are the ones that succeed in positioning disruption inside their companies, not only as a threat, but also an opportunity. You know, for example, there was the PhD thesis of, of, of a young student at Harvard Business School 20 years ago. His name is Clark Gilbert. 
he was a PhD student of Clay Christensen, the, the professor that came up with the notion of disruptive innovation. He looked at the newspaper business in the United States. And what he found was, what, he asked the question, why is it that some companies were able to respond successfully to the digital transition and others failed? He looked at many, many hypotheses. And the one he found support for was that the companies that looked at the internet and the cannibalization of the newspaper business by the internet, those companies that looked at the internet as a threat, they failed. Those companies that looked at it as an opportunity, they also failed. But the companies that were able to succeed were those that looked at it as both a threat and an opportunity. It's not that either or. There is a threat and an opportunity here. And, you know, again, I can get into the psychology why that is the case, but you know what the challenge is for companies? Because I've been going around saying this to people, and guess what? Most senior CEOs or managers will say, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. And this is how I will tell it to our people. It's a threat and an opportunity. But you know what the problem is? When you're in the middle of all this disruption and people are very worried about things and people are losing their jobs, how do you convince people that all this mess is not only a threat, but also an opportunity? That is a challenge. It's not enough to tell them. It's like me coming to you and saying, COVID-19, I know you look at all the negatives. I know you're frightened. I know, I know, I know. But look at it also from a positive way. Eh? So thing. Now, because of COVID, all of us, we don't have to go to work anymore. We are saving all this time from commuting. Class, now because of COVID-19, we have to learn all these new technologies that we didn't know before and so on. Isn't that wonderful? Well, am I right in pointing out the positives of COVID-19? Yes, at a rational level, I am. But in a psychological level, what do people, what are people preoccupied with? Are they preoccupied with the positive things that come out of COVID-19? Or are they worried sick? You know, that, oh my God, I may die, I may lose my job, but there is no future. What am I going to do tomorrow? And so on. So the challenge is not how do you tell people, hey guys, it's a threat and an opportunity, but how do you convince people? who are in the middle of all this mess, that, hey, I know you, you look at this mess and you're very worried and very disappointed, but it's also a great opportunity. And this is the mindset, the attitude, you know, that needs to be developed in an organization for people to not only look at it in a, uh, the disruption in a defensive way, but also in an opportunistic, strategic way. And the reason is simple, by the way, if I may say so one more thing. If when you look at it in a defensive way, you know, it's like uh, it's like a lion attacks you. Imagine being on safari and a lion You're a attacks you. How do you respond? Do you think strategically about how to respond to the lion? Do you sit there and analyze the situation and develop a long-term strategy? Of course not. We panic, and in the end, we get eaten by the lion. This is what happens to people or companies that think of the disruption only as a threat. They panic. They become short-term oriented and they react to the lion and the lion is going to kill them. You have to look at it not only as a threat, but also as an opportunity. So that would be the first point about attitudes and mindsets, Julia, that you need to instill in the organization this attitude. And it's, it's difficult. Trust me, it's very difficult. People get psychologically tired. You keep telling them, come on, guys, let's fight another fight. Let's do it. And the people are tired. So the task is... How do you leave them psychologically and emotionally to be passionate, to be positive, to fight the good fight with you? And I think 
What I think, you know, the companies have seen doing it successfully, and it's early days, of course, now with COVID, but we've seen some successes and we've, we have other examples that of companies that did it not with COVID, but with other disruptions. You have to do two things. First of all, you have to communicate to people a positive reason why we need to do all these things. Now, what do I mean by positive reason? Let me give you my, my, one of the most influential studies I know uh, about this is a study called Change or Die. And in this study, they looked at people, human beings, normal human beings like me and you, who recently had major heart operations. And basically, they followed them after they left the hospital to see whether they followed the advice that the doctors gave them after their operation. And what was that advice? Well, the doctors told them, when you go home after your operation, please stop smoking, stop drinking alcohol, exercise a little bit, eat healthy, you know, the usual stuff. So these academics, they followed these patients for two years after their operations to see whether they changed their behaviors. Did they stop smoking? Did they stop drinking? And guess what they found? When they went home, all of these people changed. They stopped their smoking, they stopped their drinking. But then slowly and over time, one by one, they start going back to the smoking and the drinking and the no exercising and so on. So that within six months of the operation, what they found was that 90%, 90, 90% of these people go back to the bad behaviors that got them in trouble to begin with. Think about that. This is what looking at something as a threat or trying to scare people does to human beings. What did the doctors tell these 90%? They told them, stop smoking or you will die. It's a scare, it's a threat. And the effect of a threat, it, it creates short-term action. It creates, okay, okay, I'm gonna stop smoking. But the threat goes away after one week, after two weeks, after three weeks, and people like an elastic band go back to the bad, their the habits, their bad behaviors. So threatening people is not the answer. What is the answer? Well, why did the 10% of these patients change their habits? Why did they stop smoking? Because I said 90% went back, but 10% but did not. Why is that? And the answer lies, one of the answers, by the way, there are many others, but one of the answers is that how the doctors explain to them why they have to stop smoking or stop drinking. Now, you might think it's, it's obvious. Do I have to explain to you why you have to stop smoking? Yes, you do, even if it's obvious. So the 90%, the why was because if you don't stop smoking, you will die. The 10%, the doctors told them two things. Number one, there's no question that if you don't stop smoking, you will die. You know, there's a threat framing. There's a threat here. Look, I, I'm a doctor. I'm not God. If you don't stop smoking, you will die. Okay, let's get it out of the way. But they didn't stop there. They also said, but you shouldn't think of it only like that. The other way to think of it is, do you want to go home and be able to play with your grandchildren for hours without feeling any pain? Do you want to be able to take long walks with your husband or wife in the park without having to carry an oxygen mask, an oxygen cylinder to breathe oxygen every five seconds? For the men, the men patient, do you want to live to the day when you walk your daughter down the aisle to get her married? Do you? Then stop smoking. Now, notice there, huh? first of all, the doctors, they don't only tell the positive side. No, no, no. They say, look, if you don't start smoking, you will die. But 
than the positive. In other words, there is a threat and an opportunity framing, negative and positive. So don't pretend to people that everything is nice and positive and so on. No, tell them the truth. We are in a mess. If we don't change, we're going to go bankrupt, okay? But that's not the only reason we want to change. The reason we want to change is and give them something positive, something positive to aim for. The grandchildren walking in the park, walking your daughter down the aisle. So the first thing we have to do, Yulia, is when we try to motivate people to give this positive energy out of them to respond to disruptions, give them something positive to aim to. When they ask, why am I responding to all these disruptions again and again and again? Why? Give them something positive. That's the first part. And the second part, which is more important than the first, is it's not enough to communicate the positive. Sell it to them. Sell it so that they you win their emotional commitment to it. Sell it to them so that they buy into it. So, for example, you said, how can you convince people that disruption is an opportunity? It's not through words. You can tell them all day long, it's an opportunity. Let's go and exploit it. They are not going to believe you. What convinces people is actions. So some of the companies that I've seen that do it well, they, they are not only talking about, oh, it's an opportunity and let's exploit it. No, they take actions which support to their employees that they look at it as an opportunity. So whereas everybody else is restructuring to face up to the, stack, the crisis, they go out and say, you know, there is a lot of talent that my competitors are firing right now. Let's go and hire them. When everybody else is firing, they are hiring. When everybody else is careful with their resources and let's cut costs, they are investing. They are making acquisitions, preparing themselves for the next wave when we want to come out of this crisis. So it's in a way, their actions do the talking for them. They are telling their employees it's an opportunity, but at the same time, the employees see them investing in the opportunity. They see them doing the things that basically says, I look at it as an opportunity. And that's how you convince people, you know, not only by telling them, but through your actions that lets them see that you truly believe it's an opportunity or we are doing it for something positive and so on. Can I give one final example, yeah, Julia? Please. I, a few years ago, um, I, I, we had a, a young lady from South Africa give a speech at my school. Her name is Kathy O'Dowd, Kathy O'Dowd. And she's the first woman to climb Mount Everest from both sides. She's from South Africa. And she was telling us a story. The first time around, she says, the team was in a mess. We were fighting. We, we, the, you know, I grew up, she said, in a country where I never saw snow in my life. And suddenly I was part of a team that's going to go to Mount Everest, you know, we are not training well. We are running into problems after problems. People were saying we will never succeed. We're going to die up the mountain. And one day, the leader of the team, he got us together at the, at the, at, in the tent at base camp, he says, in the Himalayas. And uh, he said to the team, look, do you know why you are here? Do you know why all of us are here? And we won't, she said we weren't very silent. And then he pointed at the top of the tent. And what was at the top of the tent? It was the flag, the new flag of the new South Africa that Nelson Mandela had developed and so on. And he said to us, look, our nation selected us to be the first South Africans 
to put the new South African flag on top of Mount Everest. That is why you are here. Everything else is immaterial. Let's all make our country proud by planting this flag on top of Mount Everest. And she says, you know, it was like a knife through hot butter. You know, it was like, my God, all of us all of a sudden got galvanized by this unifying purpose. That is, we're gonna be the first South Africans to put this flag on top of Mount Everest. And this is what I'm talking about. You give people something positive to aim for, but convince them, convince them not only up there on the head, but here in the heart, that this is something meaningful for them to aim for, and they will become the most positive and most passionate people to have in your team. And guess what? Kathy O'Dowd was saying that he had spent the first three months at base camp fighting each other, disagreeing, not achieving anything. The moment we, we all internalize that we are there for South Africa, Within a month, we were on top of Mount Everest and planted the flag there. This is the power of a positive purpose for people, but not only one that you simply communicated to them, sell it, sell it so they buy into it. Like a great generals did with their armies. Yeah. <laughs> but with examples. Everybody relies on communication. Everybody thinks that, and you know, if you are as inspiring as Martin Luther King, maybe you can inspire people through words. But if you're not as inspiring, then go use other tactics. Don't just use communication. There are so many other tactics to sell something to people to win their emotional commitment. When are we expecting the next wave? Should companies already be preparing for the next change? They're in the midst of this change. It's not over yet. It will not be over maybe for about a year, a year and something. Yeah. Some experts say even two or three years. Should they be already preparing for the next wave? I think they should. I do not know what the next big thing is going to be or when will it arrive, but something big will arrive, you know, uh, and so on. And this is, this to me is the new normal. The new normal is that while you are still trying to respond to COVID, while you are still trying to respond to AI, virtual reality, machine learning, whatever the technology, something big will again hit us. You know, nobody knows. Nobody could be the dissolution of the European Union, for example. You never know. I mean, it doesn't look good for the European Union right now. It may be a cold war between the United States and China. It may be a cold war between Russia and the European Union. It may be another war, who knows, in the Middle East, somewhere, you know, Iran, who knows? It could be a technological disruption. It could be a biological disruption, a health disruption. The next one is coming and companies need to be always ready, no matter when it arrives or what it will be. As you said, easier said than done. So what would you do if it was you running these companies right now? How would you, how would you prepare them for the next wave? Okay. Is there a way forward? Are yeah. there some strategies that they can, that they can use? Well, the, the, the first thing that I always say to people is, look, the organizational environment that you, you, you create inside your companies determines how people behave. And what do I mean by organizational environment? It's not only culture. You know, different people define the environment of an organization differently. Let me give you my definition. The, the four things I look in an environment are, number one, the measurement and incentives of the organization. We always say what gets measured, get done. So whatever incentives and KPIs you have in the organization 
will play a big role in how people behave. Number two, the culture and the values of the organization, you know, um, and so on. And that's obvious. I think everybody knows that culture and values influences how people behave. Number three, it's the structures and processes of the organization. What processes you have, what structures you'd put people in and so on. And finally, the number four is the people you hire. So these are the four things that collectively determine to a large extent how people behave. Now, why is that important? I think it's important because at the end of the day, how do you prepare for the next disruption that's bound to hit? You make your organization agile and resilient. Well, how do you do that? Well, in my opinion, you get everybody in your company to behave in certain ways. Like what? Well, you want, for example, everybody in the company to be monitoring the outside environment, not to be focused internally, but to look outside, to see what changes are coming, to assess the disruptions, the threat, and to evaluate what changes are coming soon, early, not after the changes become big and major, early before anybody else is noticing what's happening. Your people already say, wow, wow, something big is coming, something. That's why. So they look outside and monitor the outside environment. Secondly, you want your people not only to monitor and spot changes, but to have the freedom and autonomy to respond very, very quickly. Because what's your alternative? If they have to write a report, to send to headquarters, to tell the boss, oh my God, I see these changes. What do you think we should be doing? For the headquarters to evaluate and then decide what to do and then send the orders down for the troops to do, by that time we are all dead. You want people on the periphery of the organization to have the freedom and autonomy to respond. However, respond to everything? No. There are some changes that they can respond with freedom and autonomy and some changes where they, they cannot respond on their own. They have to report it to headquarters. For example, if the change required is to change the product of the organization, that's not the prerogative of the average employee to do it. You cannot go and change the product of the organization or which customers you are targeting in the name of responding to change. No, you talk to your superiors and say, hey, boss, we need to change the product. We need to change the customer selected and so on and let the boss decide these major changes. So some changes, they can respond with autonomy. Some, they need to refer to headquarters, to the boss. So what else do you need from people? You need them to know what kind of changes should they respond on their own and what kind of changes they shouldn't respond on their own. Third behavior, you want them to work across their silos so that it's not only them that respond in a little part of the organization, but holistically, we all respond and so on. Fourth, how do you respond? Many times people don't know what the appropriate response should be. So what do you want? You want them to experiment. Hey, I don't know either. Try things out in a limited way and see what works and what doesn't work and so on. So let me go back. What did I say, Yuli? I think agility and resilience is achieved when human beings are given the right, the freedom to behave in certain ways in the organization. And I just described which ways. But then we come back and say, well, how are you going to achieve these uh, behaviors? It's not by telling people. It's the environment that creates these behaviors. For example, we always tell people, hey, experiment, try things out. 
If you make a mistake, it's not a mistake. It's an opportunity to learn. Eh? Everybody says that and people don't experiment. Why? That's exactly, that's what I wanted to ask. Because it's still one of the biggest issues. We tell them experiment, we tell them measure, measure the outcomes of work, right? That's what we tell them now with remote work. And we've always said the same thing, right? Nothing has changed. And yet it's still extremely hard to do. Why? <laughs> one, it, really many reasons, like with everything, there are many reasons. I always like to think in systemic ways, but a major, a major reason is the underlying environment, the culture, the incentives, the structures, the processes, do not support or encourage the behaviors you are asking your people to do. You tell them experiment and don't worry if you make a mistake, but deep down, you know what they're thinking. They're saying, yeah, yeah, you say this, but you know what? If I try something and fail, I fear that my career is on the line. Or yeah, yeah, you say this, but you know what? If I do it, I know three of my friends who experimented and they fail and now they are looking for a job. What is that? That means that there is something about maybe the culture or something about the incentives in the system that doesn't encourage experimentation. And you're not going to get it simply because you ask people. You're going to get it only because you put the right environment in place. And that is a tricky part. The tricky part is how do you develop a culture that supports experimentation? How do you develop incentives that do not punish people when they experiment and they fail and so on? That's one. And the other thing you need to put in place is the clear parameters, you know, the clear parameters. What does that mean? It means that you say, guys, any decision you have to make that falls within these parameters, you have autonomy to make it. But any decision outside these parameters, you cannot make it. You have to ask for permission. And what are these parameters? There are of two kinds. One, the values of the organization. This is right. This is not right. So if, if, if a local subsidiary manager is trying to decide, should I give a bribe to a local government official to get a contract, that is not his or her decision to make. I'm not saying don't give a bribe. Okay, I'm not taking an ethical stand here. I'm saying it's not their decision to make. It falls outside the values of the organization. Ask the boss. So one parameter is the values. The other are the clear strategy choices the company made. What customers are we targeting? What products are we selling? So if the action required is to change the product, that is outside the parameters. You know, the parameters say we sell products A, B, C. If you want to sell product X, Y, Z, it's not your prerogative to decide that. You have to ask. And at the end of the day, we may still decide to offer it, but you have to ask. If, on the other hand, the change required is to modify the existing product to satisfy a customer, yes, feel free to make that with autonomy. You don't have to ask me because you don't change the product of the organization. You modify it to satisfy a customer. So clear parameters. It's the same thing we do with our children when they become teenagers. We give them autonomy to go out, to go out to the discos at night on their own with autonomy. But we put parameters in place. What can you do and what can you not do when you go out? The same in the organization, Julia. And we let them experiment as well. Of course, of course. Kostas, I know you really like to give examples and visualize things. So if one last question, if you would have to visualize organizational resilience and paint a picture, what would that look like? I think 
think uh, I'm going to use a biological image here, if you don't mind. You, do, I, I don't know if people will know what I mean by amoeba. Do you know what an amoeba is? Is this jelly-like uh, organism, you know, that doesn't have a body really. It, it kind of changes. Uh, it moves in one direction like a jelly. And then if it meets resistance cell, then it kind of changes direction and moves in another. That would be my image of resilience and agility because it's not enough to be just resilient. I'm very resilient to change, but at the same time, I need to be agile enough to respond and move in a different direction. So the, 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 the amoeba-like uh, creature will be an image that maybe you will, people can keep in their head as to what I mean. Thank you so much, Costas. Any last things that maybe I didn't ask and you would like to leave the audience with? Yes. Can I just say, I mean, I've been teaching now at London Business School for 30 years. And, you know, I've come to the realization that the biggest problem in organizations is not so much knowledge. It's not that they don't know what they have to do. You know, I've been going around companies. When you talk with senior executives, you tell them, hey, you have to do X, Y, and Z. They already know that. I mean, they, they know their markets, they know their industries, they know it better than you. The problem, there are two problems though. One is very often they know what they have to do, but they don't translate that into action for whatever reason. And that's a big problem. We call it the knowing doing gap. The knowing doing gap. Many times I know what I have to do and I still don't do it. I know I have to go to the gym every day, let's say an exercise, but I still don't do it. I know I have to go, I'm at that age now, I have to go to the doctor every year, have my medical checkup check whatever, you know, my arteries, check my prostate, check, you know, I know that, but I don't go, you know, big problem, big, big gap between knowing something and doing something. But now I've realized that there is an even worse problem, which is that many people may know something and then they do it, but they do it totally wrong. For example, everybody knows we have to create a sense of urgency in our organization to get action. We all know that. And people try to create a sense of urgency. But how do they do it? They do it the wrong way. They do it by trying to scare people. They go and say, oh, my God, we need to change. Because if we don't change, you're going to be go bankrupt. You're going to be another Kodak, another Nokia. Oh, my God, we cannot do that. And, and as you saw from my example of change or die, threatening people or scaring people creates only very short-term sense of urgency. It changes people, but only in the short term before they go back. So the last thing I want to leave people with is, is the following statement. It's one thing to know something. It's another thing to do it. And it's a totally different thing to do it well. And all three can be source of problems. People may not know what they are supposed to be doing. And, you know, reading books or going to schools like mine, or listening to podcasts like this one, you say, okay, now I've learned certain things. But then there is the issue, are you gonna translate that knowledge into action? And secondly, is that action gonna be the correct way of doing it or will you do it the wrong way? That's my last words, Julia, and I hope this podcast has been useful. For sure, and that's why business schools exist, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for today, Kostas. Thank, thank you for you. all your insights and thank you for your really warm energy. Thank you very much. <laughs>